2: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Peter Mech. Peter is a novelist, poet, playwright, and photographer who has served as a U.S. State Department American Cultural Specialist in Tanzania and Morocco. His award-winning photographs are in U.S. and international galleries. He was named one of the Hot 100 photographers of 2021 by the Duncan Miller Gallery in Los Angeles, and joins me today to talk about his debut novel, Zonker. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Peter.
0: Thank you very much. Glad to be
1: here. I'm happy to have you, Peter, and I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin?
0: Well, actually, uh, i uh, the way I put it, I've been a writer all my life, and it's uh, pretty much literally true. When I was about four or five years old, I started writing a family newspaper, and I got a hold of my father's royal typewriter manual, of course, and um, at the age of maybe six or seven, started typing it out every day, uh, just little tidbits of what had happened in the family, and I really enjoyed being a writer. Then, skip forward to the age of nine. I'm in fourth grade, and our teacher proposed that we spend a week all writing a uh, creative writing a short story and we all looked at her and said great that sounds like fun Uh, but this blank page in front of us is um, very blank Uh, what do we do and we all froze and she said well don't worry go home take a magazine cut out a picture and write a story about that picture and i did and i went home and i had a copy of life magazine i cut out a picture of a horse, a police horse that had fallen into the Hudson River from the pier there and was being winched out by um, a crane. And I thought that was fascinating. So I, all of this um, feeling intimidated and daunted by a blank page just evaporated. And I had a story in front of me and all I had to do was supply the words. And it was just, uh, it was almost like automatic writing. And interestingly enough, I took the point of view of the horse and wrote uh from the consciousness of the horse being in the water trying to stay afloat and being winched out and i took it to class the next day and read it in front of the class standing in front of the class and everyone seemed to like it and the teacher said something that i'll never forget but i did not understand at the time she said you know what peter has a style a writing style i had no idea what a writing style was but i figured if i have it then i should use it and uh, when i grow up i should be a writer
1: and uh it it it, that's how it turned out so rumor has it that horse wound up uh starring in the godfather did you know that (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah and i didn't get screen credit for that
1: That that would be an interesting horse story to write, you know, kind of what happened right, <laughs> right. before yeah. Luca Brazzi shows up and takes the head off the horse. Yeah. Um, do you still have that typewriter of your father's?
0: Um, actually I don't. Uh, I still have uh, the one that I was given for my first year of college, which was a Smith Corona electric. Uh, alas, I wish I had the old manual. I could probably put it on eBay and, Reap some reward from that, but no, I don't have it.
1: Um, do you still have the story about the horse did Did anybody in your family keep that story? I imagine it probably wound up on a refrigerator at some point in time
0: uh, i th- I think it did. I don't have the hard copy of it. Um, I think I recorded an audio version of it some years later, but I wish I had that original manuscript uh unfortunately i don't even have the uh, the picture from life magazine so uh yeah that stuff has uh, kind of gone up in uh, in smoke i guess
1: it sounds like uh, you were ahead of your time in the audiobook genre <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i
0: like to uh, talk in front of a mic or in this case in front of my computer camera um when i went to college i uh, i was very eager to become a disc jockey uh, which I did. And um, I had my own afternoon radio show, and I spun these records. But I found that even though I'm a fairly loquacious otherwise, um, in between the records, I found myself uh, surprisingly without much to say, other than it's 38 degrees, it's at two t- uh, 10 past two, et cetera, et cetera. I, I never had that uh, feeling of spontaneity that I had with the pen or the typewriter or a or a computer afterward um so i did my year of djing and um, decided to really commit myself to uh writing
1: did did you have a dj name did you did you alter your name at all did you give yourself a persona back in the dj days
0: well uh no and the others uh several of the others had uh, i guess we hired the jingle singing company and they all had their names sung. WDCR. This is. I never uh, asked for one of those, nor was one offered to me.
1: What market were if you? If I in? did, if I did, I would get. I would be, you know, playing it for you. Right, right. In the there you middle. go. What What market were you in when you were in your DJ well, day?
0: It was a college radio station, WDCR, Dartmouth College Radio, uh, the voice of the Upper Valley, New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, forgotten how many watts that station was it was quite a few it was quite a strong station
1: um and it's still on the air oh there you go it's been, in, it's been in the old records and i'm sure they were yeah. records back in those days they were yeah yeah they were now it's i went uh, to to do a radio thing Um uh, i was being interviewed for a change uh at sirius xm and there are you know they have cabinets and cabinets of of Actual physical media for um, CDs and stuff because they I guess there's there's some rule they have to have a physical copy of whatever they're playing digitally and he and they ah. showed me like the closet where they keep all of the keep all of the stuff I was kind of fascinated by it. I I
0: didn't know that yeah I, my only problem was uh, when I started out I was a little nervous about everything and I I hit the uh, the needle the arm so that the needle skidded across the very first record I ever spun.
1: I was interviewing uh, a, a pretty famous um, disc jockey from LA. And he, he wrote a memoir called don't bump the record kid uh, because that was the advice <laughs> one of his heroes had given yes. him. And that's that, that's the name yes. of his, his memoirs: don't bump the record. Kid. <laughs> that's so you're, you're not the only one who's bumped the record. I am sure. Uh,
0: good. Good. <laughs>
1: well, Peter, what can you tell us about your debut novel, Zonka?
0: Well, it is my debut novel. It's certainly, is, as I've said, not the first thing I've ever written, But it, and it's actually not the first novel I, I have written. I wrote two novels before this one, sent it out everywhere to every agent I could find and every publisher that I could find through my research, and I got absolutely no response. Well, that is not unusual for a writer writing in a new uh, form. And um, so I wrote this third novel and I thought, okay, what am I going to do to get this one published? And so uh, one thing I thought, well, I'll pick a genre that has a built in appeal to certain people. And um, since I like to solve puzzles, I like to create puzzles. I thought, well, I'll, I'll choose the murder mystery as my genre. Okay. Having done that, I spent six or seven or eight months researching that genre and the format. When is the first corpse? When is the second corpse? When is the first suspect's presumed guilt erased and a new pursuit must be undertaken for another suspect? So uh, I I charted that out generically. And then it was time for me to put my story uh, into that form. And uh, having used the horse in uh, fourth grade, um, I, I, did, uh, I did something else. I took the characters from my first two novels, and I thought, what a shame to have them go to waste. So I took all of these characters, and I made them all uh, suspects, and in a few cases, uh, potential victims, of a murder mystery which became my book so all of my characters uh stuck around and there they are now in uh, in print
1: finally well that's you know that's the uh, it's not uncommon you know for for your first two you know long-form manuscripts to to get rejected um or just not not pick up any steam <laughs> you know what i love is that yeah. you know you didn't let those characters go to waste and and you kind of resurrected them and brought them into this this new work um and of course, you already knew who they were. you kind of knew what their stories were, their backstories you had a you had a feeling for them that's right um so you know, maybe you needed to write those first two and sort of not yeah. have success with them so that you could write this third one that that obviously got picked up. And as you say I, I
0: I knew these characters, and that's so important and and the the uh, learning curve one has in writing anything, especially something large like a novel, is uh, becoming familiar enough with your characters that they will begin to speak on their own in their own with their own inflections, their own diction, their own cadences. and so I already had that and um The best way for a character to distinguish him or herself in a play or a movie or a book is how he or she speaks. And actually, before I wrote these novels, I was a playwright for several, many years, actually. Um, I wrote my first play in college, and um, all of a sudden, I realized this is what I was born to do, write dialogue. So for 20 or 30 years, I wrote dialogue, and I uh, was a member of uh, the theater scene in New York City. Uh, I was one of the playwrights in the Circle Repertory Company Playwrights Labs, and um, I honed my ability to uh, create dialogue, but have it sound as true to life as possible. Uh, It's obviously all artifice. It's all made up. And if you were to take a recording of someone speaking to you in so-called real life and then put that in a play, it would be quite dull. Uh, But the dialogue in a play needs to be, it has to seem as if these are real people talking to other real people, yet using the literary techniques to enliven and enhance and fashion and to shape them into something which uh, galvanizes into a work of dramatic Uh, literature so yeah this familiarity with characters is the wonderful thing and people talk about writing and they're right it's a solitary pursuit you're there uh, on the one hand you could say you're alone with your computer but on the other hand you have all of these characters and when i get up in the morning i say well you know i'll have my breakfast then i'll join my characters and spend the day with them and it's quite convivial uh, even the uh, the dastardly ones, even the the bad guys. Uh, uh, in fact, sometimes they're more fun to be with than the others.
1: No, sure. I always said, um, you know, thinking about that that classic, "It's a Wonderful Life," you know, holiday movie. That um, yeah. that yeah. Pottersville seemed like a much more fun place than than yeah. Bedford Falls. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Like, you know, that's right. I mean, maybe you want to live in Bedford Falls. You know. Monday through <laughs> Friday, but Friday night through Sunday morning, yeah. maybe you want to hit Pottersville for a couple, you know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, how, how did you find sort of going from writing, you know, writing for the stage, you know, which is clearly a very visual medium, um, to writing, you know, long form fiction, you know, really? in novel form? What, what did you learn about yourself along the way?
0: Well, it, it goes back to why did I turn from, when I entered college, I thought I would be, I aspired to be a prose writer, a short story writer, and a novelist. And I was reading a lot of, uh, I remember John Updike at the time. And John Updike is was such a masterful writer that it seemed to me I would never achieve that mastery myself. It just seemed that 300 pages with 300 words on a page was going to be beyond me. So um, quite by accident, I wrote a play. It was actually in a French course. It was uh, written in French and produced uh, during my term abroad. Uh, It was a 20 minute play. And uh, suddenly the act of writing dialogue and then the act or the uh, experience of hearing and seeing it performed on stage was a revelation, and it was a great relief because I didn't have to write so many words. I could write in a different uh, tone altogether. I was not an omniscient or semi-omniscient narrator. I uh, would, uh, in effect, farm myself out uh, to five or six different characters, each of whom would be speaking part of what I was thinking and feeling as opposed to my uh, lording over a, a work of fiction in, in in a prose style and i proceeded to write plays as i say for many years moved to new york city and um, actually uh i was an actor my first job when i got out of college was on the stage uh in regional theater in vermont and uh the story there is that in my senior year uh, at dartmouth uh, dartmouth was an all-male institution for forever until when I was there, there was an experimental program where a few uh, 20, 30 women uh, spent the year uh, on our campus. One of those women was Meryl street from Vassar. So she and I were both in a playwriting class together and got to know each other and became very good friends. And at the end of that year, Uh, We were looking at the local newspaper and saw an advertisement, a solicitation to audition for a startup uh, theater company, regional theater company. And she is uh, she was an actress in college and I'd done some acting in in uh, college myself. So we drove over from Hanover, New Hampshire to Woodstock, Vermont, in her little Nash Rambler. Uh, We both got the job. And the very first play of the season, uh, we played opposite each other in a romantic comedy called The Voice of the Turtle. So I can honestly say that her first paying job in the theater was the same job as my own first paying job in the theater. And we uh, ended up making $47.50 a week. And believe she has exceeded that and uh i'm sort of hovering around the same figure
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's funny yeah she certainly has um you know had had quite the career and it's it's always a pleasure to see uh up on the screen um in whatever she does um but this is uh this is about you this is not about uh the aforementioned meryl streep um (laughs) So anything else you can share about Zonker before we uh, before we move on and then change topics?
0: Well, I, I, I had I, it took me not writing every day, uh, seven days a week, but it took the better part of four years to put it all together. Um, it's um, it's uh, it's not a piece of cake to put together a murder mystery story. And I would write a draft and show it to my wife and I would show it to uh, my sisters. And a few other confidants and uh, take their notes and then write a second draft and a third draft and uh, the months went by and the years went by and uh, at the end of four years i had what i considered to be a final draft uh, that i could once again send out and about well i sent it out and about and again nothing nothing um and then I got something. Then I got a, uh, an offer for publication. From uh, I'm, you know, I'm eternally grateful, and um, thus it is in in print. Um, but it it's a long slog uh, for a writer, and it's a, it's a it's a solitary profession, but not necessarily a lonely one. Uh, but one of the things about theater is that you write your play all by yourself, but then you take it to a theater group, and you have auditions, and you have Writing laboratory revisions and and that kind of a thing, so that's very communal uh novel writing not so much you kind of have to just rely on those characters you yourself uh have created um, but it's what I'm doing uh almost exclusively now uh as opposed to writing plays, which I haven't actually done for quite some time because as uh A playwright once said that you can make a killing in the theater, but you can't make a living. And that's true.
1: (laughs) You know, I imagine also, 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 you know, with, with, with a play and you're seeing it performed, there's, there's somewhat of a, I don't want to say immediate gratification, but, you know, you, you see the audience or you can hear the audience's reaction to something you as the, the writer can see your work come to life. With, with a novel, it is a waiting game. You know, it's a waiting game. You, you get feedback from agents. You get feedback from editors, beta readers, friends and family. But it's a long time before you get a sense of what the market's reaction to, to it is. Right? That's, that's got to be another key difference, I'd imagine.
0: Yes, it is. And then when it is published and put up there on Amazon, uh, you know, you're waiting for the reader reviews. You're waiting for the bookstagrammer reviews and the other uh, book reviewers' uh, uh, comments. And so far, so good on this particular book. We're very uh, pleased with the response, uh, some of which now appears on uh, the Amazon page for the book. Um, But you talk about the, uh, the gratification of an audience. Um, having been an actor in college and for a while after college, uh, I've, I've never lost the performing bug. And what I do now in the way of performing is I do guest speaking aboard cruise ships. And I talk about creative writing. And I talk about how to write your own life story, how to write your own memoir. And I talk about photography since that's in the last 20 years something I have done, which really complements my writing. I write all day, and then at 5 o'clock, every single day of the year, I spend two hours uh, making a picture out of the many that I have shot over the years. I take them to Photoshop and Lightroom and uh, edit them, and then send, uh, send a new picture out every single day to a list of, of people that I've, I've developed. So so that that is performance, uh, such that at the end of a solitary working day, Uh, It's showtime and I make the picture and I send it right out and I get uh, some comments back on that on Instagram and and in my personal email and I go aboard these ships and I stand stand in one of these theaters that's like, you know, the Bellagio in Las Vegas and I talk about writing and I talk about photography and I talk about uh, the destinations for this summer, for example, Alaska. Uh, yucatan peninsula uh, various other places so um I, I have to get up out of the chair uh, with with great uh, glee and eagerness and get on stage and uh you know live
1: it as well as write it and that's that's a cool gig you know the, the cruise ship gig i know i know some people who do stand-up comedy and they get booked on these you know cruise ships for weeks at a time and uh, we thought that was kind of an interesting way. My my grandfather, after he retired, he was a, a field surgeon in World War II. And after he he retired from his his practice in Larchmont, New York, he uh, he wound up being a cruise ship doctor. <laughs> so he would be uh, like Doc from Love Boat. He was uh, he would do the cruise ships, and, he and my grandmother would you know travel, and it was kind of kind of neat. I always thought that was neat.
0: Yeah, you get the cruise. That's free. All the food is free. Everything's free. Uh, as a speaker, you're not paid. The entertainment, uh, the entertainment, uh, the singers, the dancers, and the musicians, I don't know how much they make. They make something. Uh, but for some reason, we speakers uh, take, uh, take the cruise and go to places I never would have gone before uh, and thoroughly enjoy it. Um, uh, occasionally, the seas are a bit rough. And I have had to stand up there gripping the podium just to stay upright. Um, But it's all worth
1: it. There you go. Well, one way i like to get to know my guests a little bit more is uh, by talking about pop culture. So I am curious, Peter, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV?
0: Well, I watched uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. (laughs) And I loved uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. And uh, like many of my male uh, colleagues, I uh, was in love with Annette Funicello. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote a letter to uh, the Disney company out in uh, Hollywood. I live in Connecticut at the time with my family. And uh, I I felt the letter was so compelling and convincing that obviously they would take me uh, to be a Musketeer. So I had my mother take it to the to the letterbox. And just before she dropped in, I said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait i really don't want to leave home yet i was uh seven or eight years old so she never sent it and i never became a mousketeer uh to my regret i don't think so um what did else did i want
1: you write that on your father's typewriter
0: uh yeah i suppose that's exactly where i did write it yeah. <laughs> it probably did uh what else did i watch uh well my 50s my little margie uh, our Miss Brooks, uh, thinking back, we're talking mid-50s here. And then the game shows, uh, some of them were pretty uh, frightening. Um, Queen for a Day, these tales of woe and trauma. And uh, the, the contestant who got the biggest round of applause from the audience would win a dinette set. I was pretty into that. Um, and then... <laughs> Yeah, a lot of game shows. In fact, I used to go uh, living in Connecticut, I would go into New York and book myself an audition to be a contestant uh, on these game shows. Now I'm getting up into junior high school. And uh, I always did well in the auditions, but I never got on to the uh, show. And I assume that was just because I wasn't old enough.
1: Uh, where in Connecticut did you grow up?
0: Well, not too far from Larchmont, actually. Um, I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut for four or, four or five years I was there, my beginning of my life, and then uh, Weston, Connecticut, which is right next to Westport, Connecticut. So I was always a uh, 45-minute train ride from New York City. So um, that kind of became my mecca for excitement, uh, sporting events, theatrical events, uh being I would always uh, go in and get into the audience of the Tonight Show and then rush home and see myself and when they panned the audience, when they showed it at eleven o'clock. Yeah, I was pretty starstruck uh, by by all of the uh, the glamorous things that were going on in New York City.
1: well, I, I'm smiling because I as as we're recording this interview, I am sitting in my home in Stanford, Connecticut. No kidding. Uh, uh, no kidding. And my twin brother Jimmy lives up in Western Connecticut. So how about that? Oh, this is too much. That's too, uh, too amazing. <laughs> and i say, well, now, I live, yeah, now, I live on Long Ridge Road. That that gets funnier because I live right off Long Ridge Road. Oh come on! Yeah, just three, will, mi- three miles north of the Merritt Parkway.
0: People will think fa- yeah, that's very close to where I lived. I lived at uh, Long Ridge Road, about a half a mile from the New York State border, uh, Bedford, uh, New York border.
1: Yeah, that's up that's my running route. I, I run up there, um, you know, that's a few cool. times a week up to past Rock Rim and Country Club into into Bedford. You,
0: you, go, you go right by our house. The Rock Rim and Club was the next, uh, I think, two driveways beyond us on the right. We had a 1776 house still there. I know it's still there. It looks just like it always did with a big red barn next to it. So the next time you're up there, take a iPhone
1: picture of it and I will. I will. Is it, is the is it the one the big white one right at the uh, corner of Long Ridge and Old Long Ridge at the top?
0: There is a big white one. It has a big long porch in front of it. Okay. We are two houses beyond that on the right, All opposite, right. and there's uh, there's a, a pond on the left, and then Long Ridge, and then our house. So it, but it, the distinguishing thing is the big barn
1: as you're looking at the house just to the right. Yep. I, next time I go up there, I will snap a picture. And eh, snap that's a eh, that's, that's a small made. world. I was I was also going to say you don't have to go into New York City anymore for entertainment. We've got, you know, uh, rest in peace Jerry Springer show was was taping right in downtown Stamford as is uh, uh-huh. Maury Povich and a few others. So different huh. caliber than and you know was... ours tonight show. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, yeah, what click Martha? Mar Martha
0: Hoyt school, which is now the Stanford museum was my elementary school.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Now now it's the, um, the Stanford museum and nature center and the Stanford uh, historical society is, is right over there too. Yeah. Um, yep. That stone building. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I know we talked a little bit about TV. How about music? What did you like to listen to when you were, uh, when you were growing up and into your teenage years?
0: Well, uh, there were the two big things in my life between the ages, maybe five and nine, one was baseball, New York Yankees. I, I knew the lore, history of the Yankees back to the beginning and the other was rock and roll. And so who are we talking about? Buddy Holly and, uh, Elvis of course. And, um, and then the Beatles came along skipping ahead a few years. And I am still amongst the world's biggest Beatle fans. I I just don't think there's been anything near approaching uh, the quality of their work uh, since. Uh, I was in uh, Liverpool about a month ago and took the Beatles uh, tour. And so I stood at Strawberry Fields Gate and I saw their homes and uh absorbed as much as i could uh feeling it was like a pilgrimage it was a pilgrimage so uh, yeah 50s rock and roll and that led into 60s rock and roll and uh primarily for me that was um that was beatles i loved all the stuff the stones are wonderful and uh but the beatles to me are really ground zero and
1: all the way up to the sky well, i guess that that answers the question of the um the base behind your right shoulder the- yeah the yeah. viola bass that we were talking yeah. about, where we started recording. There you go. Well, I, I haven't learned to play it
0: left-handed yet. I suppose that would be the best thing I could do.
1: Just look in the mirror. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, look in the mirror. <laughs> what, have, um, you know, what, what have you learned about yourself as, um, you know, through, well, what are you writing? Um, in what ways, if any, do you consider that to be a form of therapy for you?
0: Uh, It is. It definitely is. Um, uh, Writing is a solitary uh, um, uh, pursuit, but not writing and just sitting in in your chair is even more so. And uh, so I um, avoid the absolute solitariness by, as I say, engaging with my characters and my stories. And it is, I can be going through a a bad patch uh, in my life but I'll get to that uh, computer in the morning and all of that stuff uh, melts away for as long as I'm writing. And then, as I as I mentioned before, the photography, uh, when I'm kind of drained of words at 5 p.m., the photography is so uh, involving and engrossing, and it is such a total immersion, the other hemisphere of my brain is now being engaged, verbal all day and then visual uh, at five o'clock. So that is very Uh, Refreshing. Um, um, As far as the therapy goes, yeah, I I would completely subscribe to that idea, Uh, and it's probably why um, I have never, outside of six to eight months, once worked for anyone else in an office. Uh, I've always been freelance, and that is a that can be and, and necessarily is a perilous existence, certainly financially. And um, and I can I can live with that kind of peril uh, by simply screening out all of the anxiety and just focusing on what I'm creating. I just I, I like to make things. Uh, my last name Mac uh, in, in Flemish means make. So when I'm uh, feeling when I'm feeling great or when I'm feeling not great, I just want to make things.
1: I love that. I love that. I love that that, that story of your last name. It, it's a great name for a creator. I mean, if you were, a, it's it's a name. It's a great name for a character. <laughs> you know, um, I assume that's your real last name, and it's not. Well, a, you know.
0: well I'll, I'll let you. A little spoiler for those out in the audience who have not read the book yet. Um, I actually am a character in the book. <laughs> I'll leave All it at that. Okay. <laughs> And by name, I, I name myself in, in the book.
1: Well, that's no, 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 no spoilers there. We'll uh, we'll let the audience find that on their <laughs> own. Um, Peter, my last question yeah. is always the uh, the deepest one, which is, uh, you know, I call it a um, letter to me or a dear younger me type question. If you could go back in time, and maybe it's to that that seven year old who never put that you know Mickey Mouse letter into the yeah. into the mail, yeah. Um, what kind of words of advice would you give your younger self, if, if you could?
0: I, I like this question uh, because it's very uh, germane, very apropos. And I'll, get, I'll sort of ease into an answer by saying one of the things uh, when I wasn't seven years old, but when I was 21 years old, I was in Europe and I went to the Monte Carlo, the Monaco Grand Prix, Formula One Grand Prix. I'd never been interested in automobile racing at all. Uh, But in 1972, it was pouring rain and the big stars of that day were racing around the streets of Monaco. And I had never been so thrilled to the marrow by anything in my whole life. We're 50 years later now, and I still have that feeling about uh, motor racing, in particular single seat and in particular uh, Formula One. So I... Went to uh, a a day of racing school in uh, in London when I was about 24 years old. And I thought, oh, this is great, but it's very expensive and it's dangerous, especially in those days when the racing was much more dangerous than it is now. And I put it off and put it off and put it off the pursuit of actually getting into a car and driving at competitive speeds and learning how to take a corner. So last summer, I said, hey, put up or shut up. And I went to uh, racing boot camp. I got my racing suit, and my helmet, and for three days, I, you know, I uh, put pedal to the metal around the uh, track at uh, Pocono in Pennsylvania. And I've never been so relieved in my life to have actually done something that I wanted to do for over 50 years. All right, that doesn't fully answer your question, but um, the general uh, uh, th- lesson I draw from that is if you have an impulse and you're young enough to start off at the entry level go ahead and do it and don't don't worry about the risks and the possible negative outcomes just do it i mean it sounds like you know the uh it sounds like nike just do it uh i guess that's what i'm saying is is just and and it's it's what college is all about after all when you go to college you don't know exactly. Most people don't, except unless you're pre-med. You don't really know where all of this will be leading. And what college does is doesn't necessarily make you an algebra uh, a genius in algebra. It doesn't um, make you an instant uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. But it exposes you to twenty or thirty different fields of endeavor that you would probably not otherwise have even known existed. And one of those in your college career. Or in life but in college in particular one of those is going to catch fire and in my case as i say it was the writing i was it was already i had the kindling but the spark was writing that play in french and then it was off to the races and i did pursue writing uh, i did not put that off uh, and the things that i did put off like uh, playing this guitar up here um, i really wish i had uh, I learned the guitar when i was 15 years old i had a guitar Uh, but did not pursue that in the way I would love to have pursued it. So do I have regrets? Yeah, those are regrets, but I'm happy that um, uh, at least I am resuming my interest and my active participation in those things that I did put off while uh, uh, resting on the foundation of those things I've been doing for several decades.
1: Well, you know, I think that phrase, just do it worked out pretty well for Nike, and I think it worked out well for us here too. So yeah. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Um, my guest, of course, is Peter Meck. His book is Zonker. It is uh, out uh, wherever books are sold. And Peter, if, if people want to get in touch with you, do you have a website? Do you have any social media that you're active on that you can share with the audience?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, my website, uh, it's www. and then my name, P-E-T-E-R-M-A-E-C-K, uh, last name, can be a little tricky, M-A-E-C-K, And anybody, for that matter, who would like to uh, take me up on anything I've said today and, and pursue a bit of a conversation is welcome to email me at P, and then my last name, M-A-E-C-K, P-Mac, uh at gmail.com. And as a matter of fact, if anybody wants to uh, receive a new photograph from me every day, and I do mean every day, uh, that's the way to do it. Send me
1: an email. Very good. Well, Peter, uh, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Hey, I've been, uh, this has been such a pleasure.
0: And uh, well, who knows? To be continued. To be continued.
2: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story.